Good evening, I'm Paul DiRienzo with this news roundup. Israel's warplanes returned to bombing Gaza as a week-old truce crumbled, killing about 200 Palestinians and wounding nearly 600. The bombs hit the outskirts of the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunus as the deadline lapsed shortly after dawn. Sirens blared across southern Israel as militants fired rockets in retaliation. The Palestinian Red Crescent reported Israel had stopped all aid deliveries into Gaza at Rafah as leaflets were dropped claiming Khan Yunus is now a war zone. The leaflets add, you have been warned. Secretary of State Antony Blinken blamed Hamas for the collapse. It came to an end because of Hamas. Hamas reneged on commitments it made. In fact, even before the pause came to an end, it committed an atrocious... The U.S. says it's demanding Israel reduce civilian casualties. Over 15,000 have died in Gaza since October 7th. Thousands more are missing. Tens of thousands injured. And Israeli forces have distributed a map dividing Gaza into a puzzle of regions on paper, where apparently civilians will be ordered to move to escape the bombing. And protesters with Jewish Voices for Peace disrupted a fundraiser for the Israeli military last night in New York City. Demonstrators said in an online message they were protesting the dehumanization of Palestinians. And anti-war protesters got a big push Friday. The United Auto Workers, the nation's largest union, announced it was supporting the call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The UAW International has voted to join the call for a ceasefire. The UAW International is calling for an immediate, permanent ceasefire in Israel and Palestine so that we can get to the work of building a lasting peace, building social justice, and building a community, a global community of solidarity. That is what we've committed ourselves to, and that is as important as anything else that we're doing in this country in order to assure that workers and oppressed people and poor people across the world are on the path to winning the justice that they so deserve. You're listening to the News Roundup on WBAI. I'm Paul Durienzo. WBAI spoke with Dr. Mohamed Zakat, the General Director of Hospitals in the Gaza Strip, just days before the ceasefire collapsed. Today, we are starting to do the renal dialysis in a Shifa hospital, which is about completely destroyed, but our staff, they are managed to redo this department, important department, because we have more than 1,000 patients for renal dialysis. Mm-hmm. And they started from tomorrow, hopefully, to yeah. again to work in this department. Dr. Zaka then described the losses of medical workers during the 50-day siege of Gaza. Doctors, uh, now we are enumerate doctors 48 and nurses, doctors and nurses 162 and uh, 13 of uh, ambulance men, total 209. Did you lose personal friends, personal colleagues and associates that you had? Oh, yes, yes. My friends, a lot of our friends, my uncle, for example. How do you deal with that grief? But it is a very difficult situation. We didn't face uh, a situation like this. So most of our people here are shocked, are waiting why they are doing that, why they are continuing to, to, to kill our children, to kill our women, to destroy our cities, why they are doing like this. During the fighting, Israeli officials justified the war on Gaza's hospitals, claiming they were used as Hamas headquarters and that hospitals were bombed because they allegedly hid tunnels used by Hamas fighters. Dr. Zakat says there were never any tunnels, and Israel knew it. For example, in Shifa Hospital, our emergency department was rebuilt by the ICRC six months ago and was completely rebuilt from the zero. And they didn't observe anything like this. Israelians, when they talk about that, there is no witness, there is no neutral part to see and to be sure that it is. If they're saying that they attack all hospitals, even charitable hospitals, even small hospitals, they want to evacuate our people from the north to the south. Dr. Mohamed Zakat is the general director of hospitals in the Gaza Strip. He spoke exclusively with WBAI earlier today from Khan Yunus.
The former United Nations Special Rapporteur for Human Rights in the Occupied Palestinian Territories, Michael Link, he says Israel's right to self-defense under international law only applies to attacks from other states, not occupied territories. They have to fight that in a very targeted, precise and surgical fashion. And the way they've gone about doing it with between 14 and 15,000 Palestinian dead, almost probably 85 to 90 percent of them, civilians, certainly crosses, has crossed um, many times over, a bright red line being drawn by, uh, by international law. War crimes committed by one side does not justify war crimes being committed in retaliation or revenge by the other side. Everyone is responsible for operating within the bounds of international law. Michael Link, former United Nations Special Rapporteur for Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories. In the wake of the shooting of three Palestinian students in Burlington, Vermont over the weekend, both the Council on American-Islamic Relations and the Anti-Defamation League report a spike in anti-Semitic and Islamophobic incidents. Today, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer spoke on Capitol Hill about anti-Semitism. To us, the Jewish people, the rise of anti-Semitism is a crisis a five-alarm fire that must be extinguished. In the month following the outbreak of war, CARE reported almost 2,000 incidents of bias, a 200% increase, while the FBI had already reported anti-Jewish incidents have grown to levels not seen for decades. In more national news, Democrats are facing internal divisions over the war on Gaza, threatening the center-left coalition that elected Joe Biden in 2020, as Biden's poll numbers have tanked, especially among young voters. Co-founder of Roots Action, a group sponsoring the Step Aside Joe campaign, is Jeff Cohen. Everyone's looking at these polls, even Schumer. You don't want someone weak, and Schumer's uh, policy on uh, Israel-Gaza is appalling. But if you're a Democrat, you don't want uh, someone heading your ticket who's as weak and has caused so much voter disenchantment as Joe Biden. Major Democratic news outlets have been warning Democrats the division could cost Biden next year's election. When Washington Post or the New York Times talks about party division, it usually means there's too much progressive dissent. The reality is, if the party is divided, it's because Biden has driven away some of his most loyal constituents and demographics. Young people worked so hard in 2020 and 2022, and they're alienated from Biden because of his policies. Jeff Cohen is with the Step Aside Joe campaign. And in more political news, right-wing opponents of former President Donald Trump's bid for re-election next year are jumping onto the bandwagon of former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, 50 days before the GOP primary season starts. Haley will be the standard bearer of the influential network funded by billionaire Charles Koch. Trump is far ahead of his GOP challengers. Another major candidate is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, whose lack of campaign style has tarnished his reputation. Pundits say Haley is a hardline conservative with similarities to former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady of Great Britain. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And now we go to our extended interview with Special Rapporteur for Palestine, Michael Link. He describes how allegations of war crimes are changing the complexion of the war in Gaza. There are war crimes being committed by Israel even before October 7th. So if I can just take a minute to say there are three reports written by independent experts appointed by the UN Human Rights Council uh, to examine the prior assaults by Israel on Gaza in 2008, 2009, 2014, and 2018. And in each of those three reports, the experts said it was likely that Israel had been committing war crimes in the manner in which it conducted its uh, military operations uh, in Gaza. We also have to uh, remember that the 280 to 300 Israeli settlements in East Jerusalem and the West Bank are, under international law, the Rome Statute of 1998, war crimes as, uh, as well. So it's not as if uh, war crimes is a brand new notion to think about when we uh, uh, consider what Israel has, um, has done in its various uh, wars with respect to Gaza. Um, the 
Uh, well, let me name you a couple. One is uh, collective punishment. Collective punishment uh, is absolutely forbidden under the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949. Um, it is defined as the imposition of sanctions or deprivations on a particular group, a political, ethnic, or religious group, uh, for reasons uh, for acts committed by individuals of that group and not uh, by the groups by, to which they belong. That has been deemed to be uh, the blockade that Israel has imposed since 2007 has been deemed to be a collective punishment by the International Committee of the Red Cross, by the former Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon, and by myself when I was the uh, special UN Special Rapporteur. Uh, in terms of what is happening now, um, the use of starvation of a civilian population as a method of warfare is absolutely uh, prohibited under the laws of war. You know, this involves the deprivation of uh, the necessities of life being provided to a civilian population, such as you know, uh, refusing water, fuel, power, uh, foodstuffs, access to crops, and so on. This Israel imposed two or three days after October 7th by cutting off all imports of uh, foods and other necessities of life into Gaza, cutting off power, and cutting off uh, of water. Um, the most important thing was what you cited has to do with uh, this extraordinarily high civilian death toll. Somewhere between 14 to 16,000 Palestinians, the vast bulk of them being civilians, have been killed by Israeli shelling and Israeli rockets since the beginning of hostilities in October. International law makes it very clear that warring parties have to make an absolute distinction between combatants or soldiers on the one, one hand and civilians on the other. The deliberate targeting of civilians is prohibited, but so is the indiscriminate or reckless use of firearms and munitions with respect to civilians. So firing missiles or tank shells into densely populated areas, thinking that you're aiming to try to kill one or two Hamas commanders or soldiers, while you're wiping out entire apartment blocks full of civilians, is absolutely a war crime. Mm -hmm. And indeed, the issue has now been raised as to whether or not Israel has been committing genocide in Gaza. It's been raised by UN human rights experts. It's been raised by the International Commission of Jurists in Geneva. It's been raised by the Center of Constitutional Rights in New York. Genocide, of course, is the crime of crimes. It involves the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. We often associate in our minds a genocide with mass killing, but that's only one form or one means of committing genocide. Genocide could also be committed simply by having the intent to commit genocide, and we know that there's been a number of statements made by Israeli military and political leaders over the last seven weeks that have um, invoked the idea of wanting to destroy either all the Palestinians in Gaza or a significant part of them. But also, if you subject the people to subsistence diet, to the systematic expulsion from their homes, and the reduction of essential medical services below the minimum required, can also meet the definition of genocide in international law. The mining of Haiphong Harbor in Vietnam and the bombing of Hanoi and Haiphong by the United States military, we call that a, a war crime at the time, and basically the response was to shoot down students in Kent State. Does anybody care? I mean, I had somebody I just talked to said, there's so many things in the world and so many problems in the world, I can't deal with all of this, you know, and they just close their eyes to it. Uh, what is the response to this? Sure. How, yeah. The response has to be both legal and political. I'm obviously, as an international human rights lawyer, what I want to see is the prosecutor at the International Criminal Court in The Hague, which was set up in 2002 following the adoption of the Rome Statute in 1998, to be more assertive in his pursuit of allegations of war crimes committed by Israel and by Palestinian armed groups in Gaza over the last nine years. This file on uh, potential war crimes committed uh, by Israel and by Hamas has been on the desk of the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court since January of 2015. And in March of 2021, the prosecutor announced the start of a formal 
detailed investigation into war crimes for the prior assaults on Gaza in 2014, 2018, and 2021, as well as the question uh, with respect to whether Israeli settlements amount to war crimes as well. The prosecutor of the International Criminal Court was at Rafah, the, uh, the border crossing between Gaza and Egypt, at the very end of October. And then he gave a long press conference later on that same day in Cairo, where he indicated that he would be paying particular attention to expanding the investigation of war crimes with respect to the occupied Palestinian territory. Both Belgium and Ireland have committed several million euros to the office of the prosecutor to help him expand his resources into investigations into war crimes. I've mentioned earlier about the three separate reports that were issued to the UN Human Rights Council in 2009, 2015, and 2019. If those reports had been acted upon, if that had happened, that would have ended this culture of impunity and lack of accountability. And we would have seen people, instead of realizing that there's no cost to committing uh, war crimes, would have had to answer uh, for them in the docket at the International Criminal Court. We wouldn't have these situations that we're we're witnessing today in 2023. How do we arrest Netanyahu? I mean, he's he's not going to be an easy guy to arrest. No, but you know, if the prosecutor does start to issue arrest warrants for both um, Palestinian militant groups and the Israeli political, Mm. uh, military, and administrative leadership for what is alleged to have been war crimes, they wouldn't be traveling to to Europe anymore. There's over 120 countries who have signed up to the Rome Statute and who have pledged to arrest anybody on their soil for whom there is an arrest warrant. And as well, we have the concept of universal jurisdiction in a number of, of countries today, including those in the global north, where these countries have actually enacted the Rome Statute, into their domestic legislation, giving them jurisdiction over crimes committed, uh, war crimes committed elsewhere in the globe. Do I see this happening? My sense is if there is courage expressed by the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court to go ahead with this, then I think you would see a drastic change in the political climate, particularly in the global north, with respect to how to handle Israel. The other thing to keep in mind as well is that the U.S., has an extraordinary amount of leverage that makes no point of trying to use with respect to Israel. You have in your country the Leahy Act, which forbids the transfer of American weapons to countries who have been committing systematic uh, human rights violations. Never has that been invoked with respect to Israel. The United States provides Israel with a grant of $3.8 billion a year in weapons, much of which is therefore required to be spent. The Americans munitions industry in the United States, building up its own, I suppose, domestic constituency in favor of this money going to Israel. While we don't realize it in the global north, most people in the global south do know that the tank shells being fired by Israel into Gaza and the air missiles being shot into Gaza are American-made. Indeed, the United States has been continuing to supply Israel as it it runs short during this assault on Gaz, it has fired more than 15,000 bombs, missiles, and shells into Gaza since October 8th or 9th, almost all of them American-made. What is the responsibility of groups like Hamas or not to commit mm-hmm. crimes against even the occupier? We have one single human rights measuring stick to judge the actions of all parties to an hostility, and that includes groups that are under occupation, we're fighting against colonial rule or against an unjust occupation. There is, in international law, the right to resist that belongs to peoples trying to fight to end colonialism or occupation rule. But they must conduct their resistance, including armed resistance, within the sturdy uh, guardrails of international law. And that means they cannot target civilians. So the killing of civilians by Hamas or other Palestinian armed groups on October 7th was a war crime. The firing of rockets from Gaza into Israeli civilian populated areas would be a war crime. The kidnapping and capture of Israeli civilians as hostages and bringing them back into Gaza would be a war crime. If we're going to judge people, and particularly Israel, with respect to its conduct of the war in Gaza, we have to use the same measuring stick, as you suggest, to judge the actions of Hamas 
and Islam and Jihad or any other Palestinian armed group as well. Civilians are to be spared in all circumstances. War is war, but war for the sake of revenge without a military objective is a war crime. Israel would probably argue that it does have an objective. The political and military decapitation of Hamas and other Palestinian uh, groups. Mm -hmm. But they have to fight that in a very targeted, precise, and surgical fashion. And the way they've gone about doing it with between 14 and 15,000 Palestinian dead, almost probably 85 to 90% of them, civilians, certainly crosses, has crossed um, many times over, a bright red line being drawn by, uh, by international law. War crimes committed by one side does not justify war crimes being committed in retaliation or revenge by the other side. Everyone is responsible for operating within the bounds of international law. And we rejoin Jeff Cohen for an in-depth discussion of Joe Biden and the future of the Democratic Party. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Biden comes across as a very weak and ineffective leader. And a lot of uh, critics focus on his age. We don't. Um, you know, Bernie's older than, uh, Bernie Sanders is older than Biden and is always coherent and enthusiastic. Uh, I don't always agree with Bernie, but, you know, no one brings up his age anymore because he's so vital and vibrant. Uh, the problem with Biden is not his age, it's his policies. I don't think he can win. There's a neo-fascist threat looming with Trump or whoever the Republican nominee is in November 2024. And Biden is just sinking in the polls. And even more important than the polls that show voter disenchantment, it's the activist disenchantment, which is why we believe he needs to be replaced. There needs to be another candidate heading the Democratic Party ticket. I mean, he's alienated all these climate activists by his reversals, his drilling in the Gulf and drilling in Alaska. And a lot of those activists, young activists, uh, Sunrise activists, worked hard for him in 2020 to get him to narrowly defeat Trump. And now you've got all the racial justice activists in the uh, Arab and Muslim activists that are completely furious for good reason with Joe Biden over his I stand with Israel uh, policy of the last couple months. He's losing the support of Jewish New Yorkers by, in, by the no droves. Yeah. By droves. Oh, yeah. Look, look, my daughter has been in these protests with Jewish Voice for Peace. I'm Jewish. People under 35 see the world through an anti-racist lens, lens. They're the most anti-racist demographic. And so you're right. It goes from Arabs and Muslims to Jews to others who cannot believe that Joe Biden is defending uh, or enabling uh, this uh, uh, massacre in Gaza. But there, there are a lot of issues where Biden has alienated the Democratic Party base, the activist base, the issues base. And if you don't have activists to get out the vote, to get out occasional voters, to win over the undecided voters, you need activism in the months before an election. And just Joe Biden won't get it, which is why we, at stepasidejoe.org, we say Biden should step aside. The primary should be opened up. It should be a free for all. And then hopefully Democrats will unite behind a better candidate than Biden in order to defeat the neo-fascist threat in November 2024. Right. He has so much support, though, and uh, among the uh, establishment, elite. the elite, the establishment people, right, the elite. You know, if you just listen to Schumer's speech, I just listened to it 20 minutes ago, they're holding on to the old way of looking at things like they still think this is 1990s. I agree with you. The establishment in the Democratic Party is hanging on to Biden, but even they are reading the polls and the polls keep getting bleaker. So you're seeing people like Axelrod, the chief strategist for Obama, suggesting that Biden should rethink whether he should run. Everyone's looking at these polls, even Schumer. You don't want someone weak, and Schumer's uh, policy on uh, Israel-Gaza is appalling. But if you're a Democrat, you don't want a, someone heading your ticket who's as weak 
and has caused so much voter disenchantment as Joe Biden. So that that's why I'm still optimistic. If Biden can pull out, uh, can announce he's not going to run for re-election and do that by the end of the year, we could have open primaries. We could have some people getting into the race, whether they're senators, governors, celebrities, I don't care who they are. Uh, but the base of the Democratic Party in an open primary would be able to make demands of mm-hmm. candidates and especially make demands will you quit standing with israel when they are committing massacres and i think we'd even get a uh, on an issue as difficult for democrats as that one their democratic leaders i think we would get a better candidate and one mo- most importantly one who can actually defeat trump and neo-fascism in november of next year now i know media is your other hat and today i I don't know if it was washington post or new york times one of these places one of these gray old ladies was saying that uh the democratic party is dividing and this is going to give trump an edge next year they're saying this is a threat almost or is it an analysis that you think is accurate when the washington post or the new york times talks about party division it usually means there's too much progressive dissent. The reality is, if the party is divided, it's because Biden has driven away some of his most loyal constituents and demographics. Young people worked so hard in 2020 and 2022, and they're alienated from Biden because of his policies, climate activists, peace activists, racial justice activists, you name it. So, I mean... The media talks about Democratic Party division. It's really that the base, the overwhelming majority of the party is alienated from the Democratic Party elite. And that means in order to win in November of 2024, we need a new uh, standard bearer that can bring about a certain amount of unity in order to defeat the neo-fascist threat. Any people in mind? Well, I'd love to see John Stewart get in the race, but he won't. Yeah, I think everyone's going to. If we could get Biden out by the end of the year, I'm assuming a couple Democratic governors, including Newsom, might jump in. A bunch of senators might jump in, perhaps Cory Booker of New Jersey. Last time in 2020, we had 20, more than 20 candidates. There were so many candidates, they had to have two different debate nights, one after another. I don't know that we'd get 20 candidates, but I think we'd get at least five or six immediately jumping into the race. And that would be good enough for the Democratic Party base, which is a progressive base, to exert influence on whoever the eventual nominee is. And that's Jeff Cohen of the Step Aside Joe campaign. They're urging President Joe Biden not to seek re-election in 2024. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Meanwhile, Secretary of State Antony Blinken attended a meeting of Israel's war cabinet in Jerusalem today. Speaking after the meeting, Blinken says Israel must change the way it operates as the next phase of the war begins. It must put in place humanitarian civilian protection plans that minimize further casualties of innocent Palestinians, including by clearly and precisely designating areas and places in southern and central Gaza where they can be safe. And it means giving civilians who have been displaced to southern Gaza the choice to return to the north. Blinken added refugees from North Gaza must eventually be allowed to return home. We discussed the details of Israel's ongoing planning, and I underscore the imperative to the United States that the massive loss of civilian life and displacement of the scale that we saw in northern Gaza not be repeated in the south. Intent matters, but so does the result. In a leaked transcript of the meeting published in the Times of Israel, Israel's defense minister says his country is united behind destroying Hamas. But Blinken replied, I don't think you have the credit for that. And the war in the Middle East played out on Capitol Hill Thursday. Representative Rashida Tlaib spoke next to a photograph of three Palestinian students shot in Burlington, Vermont last week in a suspected hate crime. Tlaib condemned the constant dehumanization of Palestinians by elected officials and read from a letter from one of the wounded students. Any attack like this horrific, be it here or in Palestine. That's why when you say your wishes and light your candles today, your, your mind should not just be focused on me as an individual, but rather as a proud member of a people being oppressed. When I talk about Hisham, 
Kinan and Sassine, Mr. Chair, I think of my two Palestinian boys living right here in the United States. And in the Western Hemisphere, there are more rumors of possible war between neighbors Venezuela and Guyana. The South American countries have competing claims to an oil and gas rich region known as Esquiba. Venezuela is holding a referendum to assert rights to the region, and Guyana has requested the International Court of Justice call off the vote. Guyana's president is Irfan Ali. We believe that based on our arguments that the court will issue very strong measures against the questions of annexation and issuing of ID cards and all this reckless nonsense by Venezuela. Brazil says it's mobilizing its forces in the event fighting breaks out along its northern border. In more national news, facing impeachment and removal from the House of Representatives, New York Representative George Santos isn't leaving without a showdown. Today, he used an incident where fellow New Yorker Jamal Bowman pulled a fire alarm to block a vote to call for the Democrats' ouster. Be it resolved that pursuant to Article 1, Section 5, Clause 2 of the Constitution of the United States, Representative Jamal Bowman be hereby is expelled from the House of Representatives. Santos compared Bowman's action to the January 6 rioters, claiming, I think that's consistency. And in local news, more than 200 residents of Nostrand Houses in Sheepshead Bay are voting on whether the NYCHA development should join the Preservation Trust. It's a state-created entity that allows NYCHA's government funding to be placed in more lucrative and risky Wall Street investments. NYCHA activist Ramona Ferreira says the move could saddle tenants with increased costs and fewer protections from market swings. While tenants would still have their rent locked at 30% of their gross income, as a private management company, the trust, is able to add on amenity costs. They could turn the maintenance of the grounds into an amenity. They could turn on charges for hot water and heat and electricity. And when you look at 50% of our community being seniors, they can't really afford that. Ferreira says tenants could also lose their governing boards and other federally funded programs. Programs that are fully funded by Congress also go away because according to HUD, Public housing is only public housing when it is managed by a housing authority under Section 9 funding. Mayor Eric Adams strongly supports the plan, saying the 10-day vote is an opportunity for residents to decide their destiny. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And WBAI spoke at length with Ramona Ferreira of Save Section 9. She says that privatization is threatening public housing in New York City and around the country. The trust was a program that came to New York City that intends to use our apartments and our land, right, so public housing land, to actually be able to double the value of project-based Section 8 vouchers. And the way that NYCHA intends to do that is by working with Wall Street to get the money as a loan. So NYCHA, in the most simple way, is trying to use project-based Section 8 funding that comes from HUD and is a result of our public monies and our uh, taxes to play with our homes in the Wall Street market under the surveillance of a private entity that was created because the Albany legislators decided um, to allow NYCHA to create an independent body. Mm -hmm. There's never a situation where there's no risk. What happens if there's a sudden downturn or a collapse in the securities that are invested? So there actually is no safety net um, for the public housing that would be used in the trust. The bill itself, the state or the city did not decide to put in any clauses that would allow them to step in and save public housing if NYCHA defaulted on the loans, right? And in addition to being really concerned, we should also keep in mind how poorly NYCHA manages its funding and its operational budget right now. So for tenants like myself and many of my neighbors, we've seen firsthand that NYCHA cannot be trusted with managing the money that they're receiving and that they're not even spending the money that they're getting from the city or from the state. So we don't really anticipate that they're going to be able to fulfill the promissories on these loans. And then the banks which have invested um, and provided these loans will get to decide what happens with the public housing units, the 25000 that are the pilot program, once they go into the trust. Um, so it's a really dangerous situation. It doesn't give tenants 
um, much hope because NYCHA continues to be the housing authority that oversees the day-to-day functions of those 25,000 units. And as you know, NYCHA has failed us for years. My group, Safe Section 9, is actually working to build support in order to create a new housing authority because we recognize that NYCHA no longer prioritizes, prioritizes you know, providing safe and dignified housing to countless seniors, disabled folks, and working class families that have incomes that range from $12,000, like I do as a social entrepreneur with a disability, to some families that make more than $100,000 a year. So it's really concerning to us. We don't believe that the trust is going to give us the repairs or the solutions that we need. And we don't believe that NYCHA should be allowed to remove federal oversight, which is a really important piece of public housing. What is the oversight and what would happen to the oversight under this plan? Any of the laws that have been passed by the federal government under the Section 9 housing code would disappear under the trust because it's a private body. One of those things would be while tenants would still have their rent locked at 30% of their gross income, as a private management company, the trust is able to add on amenity costs. They could turn the maintenance of the grounds into an amenity. They could turn on charges for hot water and heat and electricity. And when you look at 50% of our community being seniors, they can't really afford that, right? Mm -hmm. Other things that we would lose is tenant participation and tenant oversight in the process. The trust does not need to honor the tenant associations that currently exist. They can choose to. And the tenant association services that are provided, like our family days, outreach programs, empowerment programs that are fully funded by Congress, also go away. Because according to HUD, public housing is only public housing when it is managed by a housing authority under Section 9 funding. Therefore, the trust is private. And it's really disappointing that NYCHA has not made that clarification clear to a lot of my neighbors. And we've been door knocking out at Nostrand Houses with folks from a group called Neighbors Helping Neighbors. And what they're finding is that our neighbors are confused about the options and that NYCHA is only really pushing them towards the trust. We see that on every floor of every building. There are flyers and, you know, telling people to vote trust. Tenants are scared. You know, they've heard about what happened in Chicago. We've also been educating them on what's happening in Minneapolis and in Miami, in Austin. Everywhere that you look, when public housing is privatized, we lose our rights. We lose privileges like union employment, getting on the fast track towards union membership for our neighbors. The amenities charges are frightening. Like in Miami, tenants were given by Related, um, which is a company that wants to demolish Chelsea, which we talked about a little bit in the beginning. They were given washers and dryers in their unit which people thought was a great benefit, right? But when you look at the washer and dryers, the tenants then had to start paying $80 a month to use those washer and dryers. And as a senior or like myself, someone that depends on public assistance because I still don't get disability, we cannot afford that money. So what you're saying is $1,200 a year to rent the use of a washer dryer that you could buy yes. a washer dryer for three or $400 and own it. And most of us currently have a washer in our unit and we hang dry, right? Which is more sustainable and it's more environmentally friendly. So we've been partnering up with a film called Raising Liberty and Raising Liberty actually looks at the situation in public housing in Miami and how the tenants, you know, that used to have homes that were well built, that were enduring rain and enduring hurricanes, six months later, they were having leaks in their unit. So it was really, really scary to see what could happen to public housing when it's privatized. Roofing, a lot of these repairs they need are massively expensive repairs. Even though they keep telling us that there is no money for public housing, there is money being allocated to NYCHA. They're just not spending it. We can't run this anymore. It's time for people to pay their own bills. We know that America hasn't signed on to the human rights agreement that would give us a right to housing. And that's at the root of this problem. How do we house our disabled? How do we continue to house our veterans? How do we continue to house our seniors? And housing them creates a more, you know, robust community. You know, oftentimes people overlook what public housing has been able to create. This month, we're still celebrating hip hop at 50. And without public housing and the community centers that allowed the first parties to take place for hip hop, you wouldn't have hip hop. 
You look at the talent that comes out of public housing, and it's a result of the investments that we chose to make after the Great Depression in ensuring that people had access to after-school care, that seniors have access to, you know, quality of life, resources like the centers and, you know, their activities and that they're checked on and that they're fed for affordable prices. And all of these things were designed to be a part of public housing section nine. It's just that slowly, like you said, the country has been privatizing things that are really necessary to make our communities thrive. The crime that we see today in New York City, I believe that it's a direct result of our community centers no longer providing after-school care till 10 p.m. And when our kids get to the ages where they really start getting in trouble, you know, when they really need supervision, when I needed to be taken care of because I was a latchkey kid, the programs go away. We would be worse off when it comes to homelessness and when it comes to crime if we allow public housing to actually fall apart. And when you look at California, is the perfect example of this. Yes, they were speaking to a staffer for Jerry Nadler that used to work in California at the state assembly. And he said, yeah, you know, there's a direct result of homelessness and vagrancy because you lost all of your public housing. New York City is currently overwhelmed in the shelter system. They're overwhelmed when it comes to schools. They're overwhelmed when it comes to vagrancy on the train. What happens when 13 buildings get demolished and only 5% to 12% of the tenants become housed? Because that's what's happened in Chicago. It's what happened in Miami. Out of 243 families that related moved from that public housing, only five returned. So does New York City really want to take on that risk, right? And, and trust a company like Related to demolish or trust NYCHA to play with our homes in the market? Are you disappointed with the mayor? I mean, only the second black mayor in New York City history, a city that's majority people of color. It's not a disappointment because I didn't vote for him. I knew that he was not going to prioritize public housing. I knew that he was not going to prioritize public schooling. I understood that most of his donations came from the market, from real estate and from private folks that have other priorities than the public does. Him being black had no influence on my choice. I vote based on policy and, you know, say Section 9 works to educate the tenants on policy. And right now, one of, one of our biggest allies in Congress is Nicole Malatakis, which is a white woman from Staten Island, right? And she's a Republican. So we really make sure that the tenants understand that we are all independent and that if you do not support public housing and you do not want to fund public services because we see a direct connection between charters and the privatization of health care and the privatization of housing, we're not going to play along with you. So we will never endorse him, and we don't expect him to do the right thing when it comes to public housing. And Ramona Ferreira is a co-founder of SAVE Section 9. This week saw the death of Henry Kissinger, the former Secretary of State and National Security Advisor to President Richard Nixon at the height of the war in Vietnam. Kissinger, a German-born Jewish diplomat, became a divisive figure in U.S. politics. His bitter support of the U.S. bombing of Vietnam that killed millions of civilians led to intense protests at thousands of college campuses. Kissinger was deeply involved in the 1970 invasion of Cambodia announced by Nixon on national television. To protect our men who are in Vietnam, and to guarantee the continued success of our withdrawal and Vietnamization programs, I have concluded that the time has come for action. Five days later, Ohio National Guard troops opened fire on protesting students at Kent State University, killing four and wounding nine others. One of those killed was Allison Krauss. Her sister, Laurel, tells WBAI, Yesterday, when I heard of Kissinger's passing at 100 years old, I was greatly relieved. He was the one in U.S. leadership most responsible for the secret 1969 bombings of people in Laos and Cambodia that led to the student protester massacres in May 1970 at Kent State and Jackson State. Those in U.S. power praised and sheltered Kissinger as they took notes from his corrupt approach to global matters and against those who dissent. On Capitol Hill, the House of Representatives voted to remove New York Representative George Santos from office days after a damning report by the House Ethics Committee. The yeas are 311, the nays are 114, with two recorded as present. Two-thirds voting in the affirmative, the resolution is adopted, and a motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. 
Ethics Committee Chair Republican Michael Guest says, although Santos remains unconvicted of any crimes, the truth is obvious. If you read those findings, again, they find substantial evidence of multiple violations, which in my case clearly supported expulsion. Answering criticisms that Santos has shown the door prematurely, Maryland Democrat Jamie Haskins says the House operates by its own rules. Under the Constitution, Article 1 gives the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate the power to set up our own ethics process and our own ethical proceedings. That is very different and in some ways far more stringent than what exists in criminal court. New York City Governor Kathy Hochul says she's happy to be rid of Santos. I'm glad he's gone because I need people I can work with to fight for New York, to bring federal money to our state, to create jobs and opportunities. And George Santos just took up space. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And in more news from the religious world, in recent days, Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has invoked the Bible to justify the bombing of Gaza. He referred to a story in Exodus where God directs Moses to launch a war of annihilation against the biblical Amalek people in the region of today's Gaza. A Presbyterian theologian, Don Wagner, says the Prime Minister is abusing the Bible. At this point, um, Netanyahu has invoked an ancient uh, trope that's actually in the Bible. You can find it in Exodus and you can find it in 1 Samuel of a hatred between the Amalekite tribe, Amalek and his people, and Israel. And the enmity stems, and we don't, this is probably not a historical document, it's more mythic legend that has built up from biblical times, where the Israelites were attacked as they just left the Sinai after wandering 40 years and entered the Promised Land. They were defeated, and as the text says, Moses went up on a hill while he instructed Joshua to attack the Amalekites, and Moses held up his arms, and that gave power. It's kind of a reenactment of coming into the Promised Land and a repeat of the Exodus narrative. That text ends by saying there will always be enmity between Amalek and the Hebrew people. That is the basis of it. In 1 Samuel, there's a section where the new King Saul was appointed by the prophet Samuel and told to go slay the Amalekites. And the text says, kill every man, woman, and child, and livestock. So he goes and he does that. He massacres all of them. But he keeps the king alive and brings him back as a ransom and takes a few cattle for himself. The prophet really rebukes him, the divine favor fell from Saul from that moment. So here you have these texts which basically have God endorsing violence. So this fits well with Netanyahu, who wants to demonize the Palestinians as if they're all terrorists and wipe them out. He gives this biblical claim, which really is not historical from what biblical scholars say. It's just fueling this primitive idea of a God who directs violence and this is sanctioned to commit genocide. It's a false use, and he's very good at this. This is not the first time he's done it. A big part of his base now are these radical extreme settlers, and many of them are followers of Mayor Kahana, that rabbi with the Jewish Defense League and the Kach Party, which was declared a terrorist organization both in the U.S. and Israel. But that group has now become a political force they're numerous, and they're actually in Netanyahu's party, and that's part of his coalition. So he's playing to that audience, but the other thing we miss is he's playing to a right-wing Christian audience, the extreme Christian Zionists, and those groups are now growing in Brazil, across South and Central America, in Africa, Southeast Asia, and you run into them when you visit the Holy Land today. But that's a base that provides him with support, political support in those countries. Israel is is used. It's used by the Christians who believe in the apocalyptic view. Israel has to become an independent, powerful nation oh, yeah. before it's destroyed. Yeah. yeah, I grew up on that. That was my background as a child. My family believed it. But I moved away from it when I studied it carefully, theologically and biblically. And it's a false theology. 
It's not at all what the Bible says. And what that does is it jumps right over Jesus and uses, strings together a few Old Testament verses. It's called premillennial dispensationalism, this end-time theology. It's around, it's growing. And that is the type that would endorse this Amalek thing and say right away, hey, the Palestinians are the Philistines, they're bad. It's a form of literalism, simplistic black and white thinking that is not good theology, and it's a misuse of the Bible. In fact, this Amalekite thing was used uh, by the Tutsis to kill the Hutus. It was used by South African whites to demonize the blacks. So whenever it's convenient, we have to work up an enemy, simplistic black and white, simple theology, you can invoke it. And that's what Netanyahu's doing today. It's fear-based. It works. It quickly dismisses an entire population as if they're all evil. Very, very dangerous. When the Christians you know, get involved, it's sort of like in, in a thousand years ago in the uh, Crusades. Yeah. Well, that's the dangerous part of it. It is not. It's a political state. It was created by the United Nations under pressure from the U.S. and in some of the European countries, especially England in 1947, November 28th, actually, in 47, then it becomes a state. It was a political creation. But religion has always played a major role there. All of the prime ministers up until Menachem Begin were secular. In fact, Netanyahu is secular, but he's a master at manipulating religion when it's convenient politically. Israel is a Zionist secular state where religion is increasingly playing a role in the far-right extremists, and Netanyahu uses that as a master. The key here is that this problem needs a political solution for the Palestinians to finally get justice and independence, where, and Israel will never be safe. Israel will never have security until the Palestinian case is dealt with. Netanyahu can try to expel them into the Sinai Desert, which my article talks about, but they will not go away. And Israel will always be insecure until that is settled politically. So religion cannot be used to eliminate that. And uh, good religion is going to talk about justice. What is just? That's interesting. He's going to expel the Palestinians into the Sinai. Hmm. That is one of the... For 40 years? Is that the plan? Yeah. You take a look at my article and you'll see there's a think tank that is aligned with Netanyahu that's recommending this is now the time to do that. Drive the Gazans to the south, then put them over the border, put the Palestinians in tents, build them buildings, get the U.S. and the rich Arab countries to pay for it and be done with it. But that's just kicking the can down the block. Those young people who have been traumatized, I saw a young boy walk with his headless mother who had just been killed by one of the bombs and asking, where can we bury her? That trauma is in the brain and is going to turn again into hatred and violence. So this is just creating more terrorists, more opposition to a future settlement so we need a political solution that's based on justice, Very not good. the cycle of violence. Theologian Don Wagner. And that's some of the news of the week. I'm Paul DiRienzo.